that you would help us understand it and that you would help us to love it and to do it. Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds and hearts to behold wonderful things out of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Our scripture passage is coming from three passages of scripture this morning. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Acts chapter 7, 2 through 8. And Hebrews chapter 11, uh, yeah, 8 through 11. So let us stand for the reading of the word of God. Genesis 12. 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed for Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram pa passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now in Acts chapter 7, this was in Stephen's sermon, his last sermon, right before he was martyred. Acts 7, 2 through 8. Stephen. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child... He promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect. 
that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. After that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Then Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 11. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. You may be seated. For those of you who are visitors, for the past several weeks, we have been studying pretty slowly the uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis. These chapters are so tightly packed with truth and facts, fundamental doctrines that would be developed and opened up throughout the entire Old and New Testament. Historical events that are right at the basis of Christianity. I told our church last week, I went to a liberal seminary and I had a course called The History in the Old Testament. And the professor started out on the first day saying we will begin with Genesis 12 because there's no history before that. So if there's no history before Genesis 12, there's no history after Genesis 12 either. Uh, it's packed with truth. It is packed with facts, historical facts. And it is so tightly written. You know, I was also taught in seminary that there's bound to be errors, a lot of errors in these first chapters of Genesis, because there's many generations, one generation after another, and the only way they got to truth down through generations by word of mouth, by oral tradition. And everybody knows that when you spread truth through generations by oral tradition, things are going to be left out. Things are going to be distorted. But that's not the way it happened. There were three men, three great preachers, from creation to Abraham. And those three great preachers were Adam, Noah, Abraham. Adam taught many generations after him the truth. 
Noah knew people that knew Adam. Noah lived to the time of Abraham. So it wasn't a matter of oral tradition of one person passing the truth down to another and then to another and another. It was sitting at the feet of Adam, sitting at the feet of Noah, and sitting at the feet of Abraham. It's so packed with truth. Now, it also is so literarily packed. Uh, it is well-organized. I like well-organized books. Uh, you can understand better. And as we've said many times, Genesis is very organized. It begins with an introduction in chapter 1, the creation of the world. And then the rest of Genesis is comprised of 10 sections. Each of those sections begin with a Hebrew word, Toledoth. Toledoth, if we were to translate it in English, means something like a record of the outcome of so-and-so's life. And so we've seen several of those Toledoths so far. And every time another section appears in Genesis, it narrows the scene of action until finally we get to the first verse of the New Testament, which in English says the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham. But if it was written in Hebrew, the first verse of the New Testament would say, this is the Toledoth of Jesus, of the outcome of Jesus' life, who was the son of Abraham. So you see this truth that starts out in the very first part of the Bible and continues to the very end of the Bible. You know, you just can't jump into Bible anywhere and try to make sense out of it. You just can't open up the Bible and start reading there and say, well, I think I'm going to start with Romans or I'm going to start with Titus or I'm going to start with Haggai. And think you're going to get anywhere in understanding the Scriptures. Anything other than just a superficial understanding of things. When it comes to reading the Bible, you want to start where God starts. And you want, because you can't understand what happens next until you know what's going on and what's being taught in the first 11, 12 chapters of the Old Testament. Last week, we began to study a Toledoth called the Toledoth of Terah. This is the record of the outcome of Terah's life. Most people in this world have never heard of Terah. Most Christians have never heard of Terah. Terah was Abraham's father. And why they call it the outcome of Terah's life, it's mostly about Abraham. Well, Abraham was the outcome of Terah and his wife's life. But you know, in, the, in the, uh, this Toledoth of Terah, which is mostly about Abraham, Abraham is not even the central character. Uh, this whole section can be divided like this. There's an introduction 
in the last verses of chapter 11. There's an introduction. And then you can divide the, this uh, total off into three se other sections. Because God made Abraham some great promises. The promise of a land on which he, on which he could build a godly uh, civilization. The promise of a seed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the church in Christ. And the promise that that seed would someday inherit the whole earth and fill the whole earth. And so this Toledoth is divided into three sections because this is a, a series of tests that God gives Abraham. God gives him a promise and then tests him to see if he's going to continue to believe in the faithfulness of God. So the first section, he tastes, uh, tests him about the land. Second section, he tests him about the seed. Third section, he tests him about the rich future that will be opened up for the children of God. And the way God tests Abraham, and some of these severe tests are very severe, the way God tests Abraham is delay the fulfillment in each case. Here's a great promise, Abraham. I'm not going to give it to you yet. And so it is a series of tests by which God strengthens and matures Abraham's faith. Because God wants Abraham to have three traits in his life. He wants his faith to look like this. Uh, that Abraham's faith is a faith that is in total dependence to God for everything. That he cannot depend upon himself for anything. If he depends upon his own wisdom, he gets in trouble and uh, in Egypt. And there's a lot of tests he fails. If he, the second thing God wants him to learn is that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus. You remember I said Abraham is not the main character? It's very literally Jesus. I don't mean that in any kind of metaf metaphorical sense. You remember when Jesus was sparring with the Pharisees about who he was? And he said, uh, Abraham saw my day. And rejoiced. So Abraham was a believer. He was a Christian. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God had opened his mind and his heart to see who Jesus is and to believe in him. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Pharisees said, that's stupid. You're not even 50 years old. Abraham said, I know. Before Abraham was born... I am the living God. So this told it off is about Jesus in whom Abraham put his faith. And the last thing that Abraham believed and these tests strengthened 
One, he had to depend upon God. Second, he had to believe that salvation was by grace through faith alone. And thirdly, God wanted to teach him that the giver is more important than the gifts. We love all the gifts that God gives us, but we must not focus on the gifts as we, much as we focus on the giver. The promises are great, but nowhere near as great as the promiser. And those were lessons that Abraham had to learn in his life. Now, I, I'm chewing it a bit to get at the Abrahamic covenant because this is the root from which the rest of the gospel springs. When you became a Christian, when you joined the church, you joined a church that's been around for thousands of years. You, joined, you, you became a part of a religion that's been in existence for thousands of years. If you had the same faith that Abraham had, you're a member of the same church that Abraham was. And you held the same religion that Abraham held. Uh, and the promises that God made Abraham are promises that God made you and your children and their children down through thousands of their generations. But we're not going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant today. I got something else important to talk about. Understand that between the flood, if you read Shem's genealogy, between the flood and Abraham, the population of the earth exploded. It can be shown that there were as many as uh, 10 to 25 million people on the face of the earth. Uh, there were, you know, Abraham went to various cities. There were cities full of people that were established after the flood that took place just a few generations before Abraham. And uh, Abraham went to a lot of those cities. He was a man, you notice he traveled a lot in Canaan. He was born in Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, do you remember the important global event that took place in the Ur of the Chaldees under President George Bush? Most people never even heard the word until Hussein, Saddam, threatened Mr. Bush by saying, you want to bomb my airplanes? All of my airplanes are in the Ur of the Chaldees. So have at it and go ahead and destroy thousands of years of history. But most people have never heard of Ur of the Chaldees. So Abraham was, uh, grew up in that area. And then God made a covenant with him and you know, being in covenant with God is the richest, greatest, most spiritual, loftiest, most profound blessing that God can give you. To be in God's covenant. That's not just a little structural thing. That's the greatest blessing there is in all the world. 
And God entered into a covenant with Abraham and bound him and all his generations to himself. Well, now the question I want to ask is how did Abraham come to get in that covenant? Because you notice the title of our sermon is The Irresistible Call of the God of Glory to Abraham. Abraham was in this pagan culture. You remember Abraham, uh, his father and his other ancestors worshipped the moon. If in Southern, if we were to define the word Terra, it would mean old Mooney. Uh, they worshipped idols. And Abraham's there in that culture. And the God of glory, the creator of the earth, appears there. Now, this is one of the greatest acts of sovereignty in all of history. There were a lot of cities. This area where Abraham lived was full of paganism. And God comes to one man in Ur the Chaldees. Of all the other men he could have chosen. And said, Abraham, I want you to go where I'm telling you. And be my follower. Now you know there is a word that's not in the text. You're not going to find it in any of the English texts. Uh, nor in any of the Hebrew texts. That word is this. God did not come to Abraham in the earth of the Chaldees. And say, Abraham, go forth from your country to the land I will show you. Okay? <laughs> the word okay is not there. He wasn't asking Abraham's permission. He wasn't saying, Abraham, make a decision. It's up to you. If you want to do this, you're more than welcome. God said, Abraham, this is the way it's going to be the rest of your life. You have no choice in the matter but to obey me or perish. I want you to leave this land of the Chaldees where you've grown up. And I want you to go somewhere else. Now, I'm not even going to tell you yet where it is you're going. So to put it in modern terms, Abraham removed himself from Iraq to Israel because that's where the or the Chaldees was. And he left that pagan land to a land that was full of more enemies that he had to fight, had to deal with. It was full of Canaanites. And many of these Canaanites were descendants of Ham. They uh, were cursed. And uh, that's where God said, I'm going to give this land to you. When, when he didn't have one foot. One, one foot of land. Did you notice he traveled everywhere in that land? He went from place to place to city to city. As Calvin said, he went all over the land of Canaan to perfume the entire land with his presence. 
He walked over that whole land full of Canaanites, and he was just a stranger and a wretched wanderer at the best. But he ran, walked all over that land as if he was the Lord of it, which he was. And he knew that someday that land would be his and would be his descendants. So Abraham is called by God to follow him. The word call is one of the important words, particularly in the New Testament. In fact, Christians are called the called far more than they're called Christians. Uh, for instance, you know, in Romans 8:28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called. And also, you know, the word church in Greek. The word church is ekklesia. Ek means out of. And the second half comes from a verb, kaleia, kaleia, which means to call. So the church is defined as the called out ones, the ones whom God has called out of darkness to serve the living God. That's how you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian until God calls you to become a Christian. Nobody's even going to want to become a Christian until God calls them. Nobody's even going to want to believe in God or believe in Jesus until God calls them. And when God himself calls a person to follow him, that person comes. No ifs, ands, and buts. All the powers of heaven and earth and hell cannot keep that person from heeding that call. It comes with omnipotent power. When God calls a man to be a believer and to be a follower, if he were to call him with any power of less, less strength than pure omnipotence, nobody would ever come. We would all resist that call to the death. But when God calls a man to come to him, it's irresistible. Or as my old professor William Robinson used to say, it's invincible. It cannot be defeated. You may struggle against it for a little while, but eventually it pulls you out of darkness into God's light. Uh, one of our most precious doctrines in the Westminster Standards and in the Reformed faith is uh, effectual calling. That is, uh, when God calls somebody to become a Christian, it's effectual. It happens. We have a thing called the general call of the gospel, and that's something that we do. We cause individual human beings, we call people to become Christians. They can resist us, and usually they do. They can say no to whatever we call them to do. But when God links his omnipotent voice to the voice of the church, and God says, come to a land where I show you to, to go, that person God raises out of his spiritual death 
and gives him a power he has never had before. And God is obeyed. Nobody, nobody can turn down and resist forever the effectual call of the Almighty God. Nobody. So that's how Abraham came to be in the covenant. God called him to believe in him and to follow him. And what did he call him to do? Abraham had a very little idea of what he was going to do, where he was going to go, or what even these promises meant. But he came to God himself when God called him. Because you see, the first thing the call accomplished, it brought Abraham to God. It brought Abraham into fellowship and friendship with God. Before God gave him any other blessings, the call was, Abraham, I want you to be my man. I want you to live in fellowship with me. I want you to be my friend. I'll be your sovereign friend. You be my servant friend. And we'll live forever like that. Don't ever forget I'm your sovereign. You're my servant. But we're friends. Can you imagine? To be a friend with the creator of the universe. To be a friend of the God of glory. Now how in the world did God appear to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees? The God of glory may be a hint. You remember later there was this fiery pillar, the glory cloud, that led the children of Israel through the wilderness under Moses' leadership. And that bright glory cloud was the visualization of all the glorious perfections of the living God. So maybe when the Bible says that God called Abraham as the God of glory. Maybe Abraham saw that glory cloud. Or maybe the Bible is saying that God saw, that Abraham saw God in all of his perfections. But that's the first thing the call of God does. I want you to be my friend, Abraham. We're going to be friends. We're going to enjoy sweet fellowship and communion the rest of your life on earth and in heaven. So the first thing the call of God affected in Abraham's life was to bring him to God himself. Remember what God's teaching Abraham in all his tests? I want you to want me more than my gifts. I want you to love the the giver more than his gifts. So the first thing that's going to happen in your life, you're going to get the giver before you get any of his gifts. The second thing that this call affected in Abraham's life, it raised him out of an evil culture and said, Abraham, I want you to turn your back 
on everything you thought was true and on every way you thought was to live in the earth of the Chaldees. I want you to turn your back and abandon that idolatrous culture. I want you to abandon their views of right and wrong. I want you to abandon their worldview. I want you to leave the kind of life that you lived in the past for a whole new life. That's called repentance in the deepest sense of the word. And Abraham did it. Didn't know where he was going. But he said, I, I know God. By the way, that reminds me, you know, the first question and answer in our shorter catechism is what is man's chief end? And you know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But John Calvin wrote a catechism. And in his catechism, the first question is the same as in ours, but the answer is different. In Calvin's catechism, he says, what's man's chief end? And then the answer Calvin gives is to know God. <clears throat> to know God. There's nothing worth anything if you don't know God. Not just know about Him, but know Him as a friend. And when that happens, you want to turn your back on everything you were before. You want to turn your back on whatever you thought was good, whatever you thought was evil, to be transformed by the Word of God. You want to turn your back on the earth of Chaldees, all the things you'd learned at your daddy's knee, old Mooney, Everything you learned at your daddy's knee, everything that you considered more important than me, I want you to lay it all aside. I want you to leave it. And the heaviest thing that Abraham had to lay down and leave behind was what? Himself. Because you see, God, Jesus said the same thing that the God of glory said. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must renounce yourself. You must deny yourself. You must repudiate yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That was the heaviest thing Abraham had to lay down. But without self-denial, we're not Christians. Calvin has a great one of the greatest chapters I've ever read on the subject of self-denial. There's a chapter called Self-Denial in his book called Institutes of, of uh, Christianity. Institutes of something. Anyway, in, his book of Institutes. Uh, that self-denial, you can't be a Christian without self-denial, and you can't deny yourself unless you've been called of God. The only people that lay down their own lives and deny themselves, renounce themselves, are those who have been called of God out of darkness into light. You know, you hear psychiatrists all around today say, those that pretend to be Christians, the three great commands of Jesus in the Bible, the three great commands are to love God, love your neighbor, 
and love yourself. <laughs> the only problem is that Jesus said there's two great commandments, not three. <laughs> love God and love your neighbor. Nowhere in the Bible are we given the commandment to love ourselves. In fact, the commandment is to renounce ourselves. We already love ourselves too much. We put the interest of, we must put the interest of God above our own. We must put the interest of our brothers and sisters and other people above our own. And we, we come last. So when the call of God comes to a man, that call gets him to God. And in getting him to God, it pulls him out of a culture that's idolatrous. And of course, his biggest idol that he worships with the most zeal is himself. And then, there, what, else, what else does that call affect in you? When God calls you out of spiritual deadness and rebellion against him, he calls you to himself to be his friend. He calls you to abandon the way of life that you lived before. And he called Abraham and he calls you to believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. I'm not adding to the scripture. We'll see as we go through the next 10 chapters that that's exactly what Abraham did. The New Testament talks about that. The Old Testament talks about that. It wasn't some kind of generic believing. It wasn't a believing in a God that's different than our faith in Jesus. Abraham believed in Jesus and it was credited to him as righteousness. You can't believe in Jesus unless you've been called of God to do so. Jesus said that too. In chapter 6 of John, he said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And overpowers all of his desires to live for himself. Overpower all of his desires to stay in the old culture that he was born in. All of his desires to worship another God. That call of God comes to his chosen people with omnipotence they cannot resist. The God of glory. Unless he calls you to become a Christian, you will never be a Christian. You'll never be able to believe in Jesus. You won't even want to believe in Jesus. No one can, C-A-N, no one can, said Jesus, come to me, which means believing in him. No one can come to him unless the Father who sent, who sent me draws him, calls him to follow him. And when God calls you to follow him, you start believing in Jesus that moment and you believe in him for the rest of eternity. What did Abraham's faith consist of with reference to Jesus? Abraham believed that the Savior was who he claimed to be. And that moment, that split second, when Abraham believed in Jesus Christ, the God of glory 
declared him not guilty, adopted him into his family, forgave him of all his sins, and justified him. And that faith in Christ was imputed to him by the living God. You get that in Romans, you get that in Galatians, you get that in Genesis 12. That's what the call of God does. Nobody in this room will ever believe in Jesus as his Lord and Savior until the effectual call of God comes to your heart. You won't even want to. So how did Abraham come to get in the, in the covenant of God? By the call of God, this irresistible, omnipotent, invincible call of the God of glory, overpowering all of his weaknesses and all of his desire otherwise, called him to himself, called him to abandon the evil culture that he once was a part of, called him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and fourthly, called him to live a life of faith and obedience. Abraham, I'm not going to tell you where you're going in any kind of detail. I want you to learn to, to trust me, to trust my word, and to follow me no matter what I tell you. No matter what I tell you. To follow that word. Wherever it leads you. And so that's the nature of a life that's been uh, under the call of God. He believes whatever God tells him in the Bible. He's not going to question anything God tells him anywhere. God, are you sure that's right? Are you sure the, world, the, the, the flood was global? Are you sure? Somebody called, called of God never says to God, are you sure about anything? Somebody calls of God and says, yes, sir. I will not question. And whatever you call me to do in my life, I will follow that word. I will live a life of faith and obedience, and that's what Abraham was known for. The, uh, the, the, the book of Hebrews, the uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, all of them emphasize that this man who was called of God had faith in Christ that moved him to obey whatever God tells him. Did you notice that uh, what Abraham did when he went around the promised land? Let's look at verse uh, 7 of G Genesis 12. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, to your seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. That is the characteristic of Abraham's life as he goes all over this land that God promised him. It was still in the hands of the Canaanites, perfuming it with his own presence. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar. You remember that about Abraham? He lived in tents and he built an altar. 
And uh, what was this altar? This altar was a symbol of, number one, it was a symbol of Abraham's gratitude that God reached down and condescended and out of all the people on this earth chose Abraham. You know that's the distinctive feature of the Christian faith that makes it different than any other religion on the face of this earth? The condescension of Almighty God. Christianity is the one religion where God condescends to man for his rescue rather than waiting for man to climb up a ladder of good works to God. God condescended to Abraham and called him to himself, and that altar was a symbol of gratitude. Well, what did he do on that altar? The word altar in Hebrew means a place of slaughter. A place of sacrifice. Altar was where sacrifices were made. What's Abraham saying? I'm going to build an altar here because I believe in Jesus. He's my only redeemer. I believe that his sacrifice on the last altar of the cross is the basis of my acceptance with God. That's what Adam taught his sons. And we see that several times through the early chapters of Genesis. But wherever Abraham went, he built an altar and he offered sacrifices to God. And the animal was burned up, symbolizing propitiation, that God has poured out his wrath on this sacrifice rather than on me. And the animal sacrifice was just a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also says in verse 8, he built an altar to the Lord, and the, notice the word Lord is in four capitalized letters. That means underneath that word in Hebrew is the word Jehovah. And called upon the name of the Lord. That's an Old Testament phrase for public worship. Everywhere Adam went, he would build an altar because he knew that he could have no fellowship with the living God outside the sacrifice of Christ made in his behalf. And there and there at that altar, he would call upon the name of the Lord. He would publicly involve himself in the worship of God is the point. It says in Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall you call upon him in whom you've not believed? And how shall you hear? How shall you believe him whom you've not heard? And how shall you believe without a preacher? So Abraham knew what he was doing. Here's a man in the midst of a land full of Canaanites and worshipers of false gods who was not afraid to build an altar to his God and then hold public worship with whoever were around him, his slaves, his family. They would gather around, him, around the altar and they would praise the living God. Have you ever heard anybody saying uh, altar, talk about altar calls? Have you ever any, heard anybody talk about marrying some woman as uh, bringing her to the altar or going to the altar to pray? Those are all sacrilegious ways of speaking. The church has no altar. 
It has no altar and has had no altar until that, since that last one. What happens at an altar? Sacrifice is made. Blood is shed. And the last altar was Calvary. That's where the sacrifice was made. Don't talk about this as being an altar. It's a communion table. Don't talk about an altar, law, uh, altar call. Don't talk about coming to the altar. All those things are more Roman Catholic than anything else. So worship, public worship, was the most important thing in Abraham's life. Everywhere he went, he worshiped the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. One last thing. God brought him to himself, called him to himself. God called him out of a wicked culture. God called him to a life of faith and obedience and worship. And lastly, God brought him into a covenant with himself. We'll talk about that next week. God brought him into a covenant with himself. What is the covenant? You know how I often say, if you don't know what the covenant is, forget trying to understand anything else in the Bible. This Bible is about a covenant that God made with his chosen people in Christ. In which covenant he would be their sovereign friend and they would be his servant friends. Let me give you very quickly three definitions of a covenant that people have given, all of which have their strengths. Uh, first of all, a covenant is a communion of life. When you enter into God's covenant and you and your family enter into that covenant, you enter into communion with him, fellowship with him. You know this God and you have fellowship with him and communion with him, not just at the Lord's Supper, but you live every day of your life in deep communion and fellowship with the living God. Uh, a covenant is a communion in life of life. Secondly, a covenant is a sovereignly dictated order of life. That is, when God brings you to himself and says, you're my man, you're my woman, I want you and I want your family, he gives you a sovereignly dictated order of life, and he says, and here's the way I want you to live as my man. And he puts his law in our hands. He saved us by the gospel. And then he puts his law in our hands and he says, now having been saved by grace, I want to show you how I expect a saved man and woman to live. And so he hands us the law. He hands us the law in a, stra in a, in a nail-scarred hand. He's not saying obey this law so that you can earn salvation. He's saying, I want you to obey this law because I died for you. And this is the way somebody who's in covenant with God lives. And then there is a, a third definition of a covenant. A covenant, and this is Palmer Robertson's, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That even sounds good. A bond in blood 
sovereignly administered is first of all a bond. When God enters into a covenant with you and your family, you're glued to God with a glue that will never break. You are God's family and God's man and God's woman. It is a bond. It is a bond sovereignly administered. That is, God determines who's going to get in this covenant. And God determines what they're going to do after they get into it. And God's going to make a lot of promises. And God's going to make a, a, a lot of uh, laws. Because you see, this covenant is not a bond between equals. It's a bond between a superior and equal. You don't get to say anything about what's going to take place. You say, yes, sir. You died for me. Your son died for me. I'll do what you want me to do. You give me the strength to obey. You gave me the strength to believe. You'll give me the strength to obey. What it was that Augustine said in a prayer? He said, Lord, give what you command and command what you will. You give me the strength to do it and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. A, a sovereign administered, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. What does that mean? Well, what, what's blood? Let's don't talk about it theologically or yet, but blood, what, what does that imply? Well, I'll tell you a story of my son John. My John was about eight or nine years old. And he came to me and he brought the reddest, brightest apple you have ever seen. And he was cutting on it with his knife that some fool gave him, me. <laughs> he was eight years old. So he's got this bright red apple, he's cutting on it with his knife, but I looked at that apple a little closer. It's an orange. The red is his blood. Everything else stops until we see why John's bleeding. Blood is life. Nothing more important than blood. That's how valuable and how central and how important this covenant is. And then God shed the blood of his son in your place. And that's why your sins don't even break that covenant. Because Jesus was punished for you. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. How can you know God called you? I gotta quit. How can you know God calls you? Three simple things. Four. Number one, you believe in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior. You believe that he paid it all. But whatever you owe God, he paid. That he went to hell for you. He took the hell that you should have taken so that you wouldn't have to go to hell when you died. Second, somebody who's called of God not only believes that, but because they believe that, they follow Christ wherever he goes. My sheep, hear my voice and follow me.
How do you know you've been called of God? You're following Jesus. Now, nobody does that perfectly. But you're following your Jesus as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, as a child. Thirdly, you've turned your back on an evil American culture. You say, I'm not a part of this culture. It stands for everything I don't stand for. And I abandon it with myself. I beseech you, therefore, by the brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. What happens in a sacrifice? The old Hebrew man would offer the sacrifice and then pull his hands back as if to say, that's it. I'm taking all my hands off of this sacrifice. It's not mine anymore. It doesn't belong to me. I'm laying my life down as a sacrifice, except because of Jesus. I don't want to claim it anymore. You died for me. You purchased me with your own blood. I'm going to take that seriously and not live for myself. And also, lastly, you know you're called when the greatest joy of your life in this world is to worship God. Is to publicly, with your heart and soul, with your family, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, worship God. What brings you the most joy in life? What value do you place on this evil American culture? Whose word are you following? And in whom does your soul trust for acceptance with the living God? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for our father Abraham is also our brother, our father in the faith. Oh, how we do look forward to meeting him someday as he stands there by Jesus. Lord, may our faith look like Abraham's faith. May our lives look like Abraham's life. Help us to live and act like the called of God. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let us stand. Andrew, would you pick up this book for me, Andrew? Let us stand and confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the triune God, by reciting the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So now what are we going to do here to Lord's Supper? We're going to commune with the living God and with each other. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to commune in his blood. We're going to commune in his flesh. That doesn't mean we drink his blood and eat his flesh with our mouths. We do that by faith. Just as soon as we put the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine in our mouths, just as soon and just as really, we feed on the life and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We commune in His blood by communing in all the accomplishments of His shed blood for us. We commune in all of the blessings and gifts of the covenant of grace. Most of all, we commune with our sovereign friend. So, who's invited to come to this table? Not just everybody. You must be baptized. You must have made public profession of your faith in Christ. You must love Christ and seek to serve Him in the fellowship of a Bible-believing evangelical church and prepare yourself for this meal. If you come like that, God's going to load you down with covenant blessings. If you come any other way, God's going to load you down with judgments on your life. Let us pray. <clears throat>